open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Romans. We are ready uh, to begin chapter 2. You can tell by Thursday's email, I was anticipating going through the first 11 verses. I was all the way up through about midday yesterday and just decided uh, the trimming down of what I had for 11 verses was just going to be titanic and perhaps uh, more than should be cut out. So even though the first 11 verses are uh, one big unit of thought in many ways, um, we're going to end up with just the first five verses this morning. And let me give this quick disclaimer that I'll probably put in a little more regularly because Romans is unpacking big thoughts in big chunks. And so it's easy if you're not here consistently or if this is your only time here or if you're here just uh, for a couple of these that you only catch these fragments of a bigger, very well laid out explanation of the gospel that you really need the whole book for. Uh, I would urge you at least, if nothing else, if there's anything you're seeing here that's like, whoa, where did that come from? Would you at least read the first five chapters of Romans that I think will give you a much fuller picture and understanding? So each Sunday we're basically essentially proverbially looking at one tree and we lose the forest, we lose the big picture uh, when we're that uh, de detailed. So that's my little charge to uh, try and keep the big picture. If you miss messages, try and take those in online and keep the flow that, that Paul is, is by God's work and the Spirit in him laying out of this foundation of why the gospel is so needed and important. So, quick recap, just to try and tie all of us together. There's probably only 20% of us that have been here for the last five Sundays, six Sundays that we've been in Romans. So, after introductory things, verses 16 and 17 are really the starting point where Paul really gets rolling and really are the thesis statement for the entire book. The core tenets of the gospel are that God has power, God alone is righteous. Those two things brought together bring an incredible salvation for all sinners who believe, who trust wholeheartedly in God's provision of Christ, and walk by faith from beginning to end of life, leaning heavily on Christ and the gospel. Now Paul, in verse 18 of chapter 1, begins to launch into a very large argument that will go all the way into chapter 3. So a good two full chapters or large sections that are taking us a couple of months to work our way through, but introducing the thought of God having wrath. Now if you look at 3.21, you'll see the righteousness of God is going to be picked back up again. But in between, we could basically say this is the unrighteousness of mankind, of human beings. And verse 18 of chapter 1 introduces that God not only has power and righteousness, but he has wrath, and he's beginning to reveal it. And the reasons we're given very quickly are, in the rest of chapter 1, is because humans are suppressing the truth that God has clearly shown. They're failing to honor him, failing to thank him, trusting Lies from the world and from their own hearts rather than the truth of God. And in all of that, they're exchanging that rather than worship the creator of all things, they choose instead something lesser, some idol, some part of creation, even though they owe all to the creator, God. Then the last part of chapter 1 tells us that 
the way God shows his wrath is he gives humanity up to dishonor the human body as they so choose, tragically, to dishonorable sexual passions as they so choose, tragically, and to debased minds that spew out evil. One of the things in that list in the, at the end, toward the end of the chapter is that they invent evil. Like it just comes pouring out of us. It manifests itself differently in terms of details of how it looks in all of our lives, but it all comes pouring out. And the point of all of this, we're told in verse 20 at the very end of chapter 1, is that it puts people without excuse before God. That thought is going to be reiterated in verse 1 of chapter 2 today. So critical element that again, a different set of people we think, are also without excuse before God. And this section now introduces a fourth critical attribute or action of God besides his power, his righteousness, and his wrath is his judgment. In contrast, we're going to see, as the chapter opens, to the misjudgment and the misassessment and the misdiagnosis and the misdecisions that man makes about God, about man, about sin, and about what that all is going to mean in the very end. Judgment is such a big deal here, the judgment of God, which is noted in verse 2 of chapter 2, verse 3 of chapter 2, and then described as the righteous judgment of God in verse 5. So three times in this section today, God's judgment is going to be named. And it's such a big deal that verses 6 through 11 will break from the argument about mankind and describe more details of what the judgment will entail. So part two next Sunday, verses 6 through 11, Lord willing. Today we'll try and at least tackle the first part. One of the challenges in Romans 2 is that it opens with a change of pronouns. If you don't know what a pronoun is, that's okay. This is just for those who care, all six of us. But if you could go to the next slide, there is a question here about who is the you referring to. So chapter one finished with they, 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 they. And now you. So could it be the Jews? That is the strongest argument, the most prevalent argument among those that I Uh, consulted in thinking through this because they have had the law of Moses and they have a long-standing covenant that God has made with them that they believe puts them in a different category than the common average pagan Gentile. So Douglas Moo references, uh, and he titles this section, The Jews and the Judgment of God, references that in the synagogues there was often Gentile bashing. So, Tom Schreiner unpacks it this way. What Paul needed to show was that Jews who possessed the law and a covenant with God were not saved with those advantages. Their covenantal relationship with God will not spare them from judgment unless, end of verse 4 of chapter 2, they repent. Moo. The main point of the paragraph is clear enough. Jews must not think they can sin with impunity just because they're in a covenantal relationship with God. Indeed, In light of verses 6 through 11, Paul appears to go one step further. Jews have no right to think that the covenant in itself puts them in a better situation than the Gentiles before God. 
The other argument here is that the you might be referring to what we could just, in general, regardless of nationality or ethnicity, just describe as people who are self-righteous, that they set the standards of what righteous is, they define it, largely by their own lives and their preferences, and designate themselves as far less sinful, in fact, not really bad sinners, before God, and thus don't need the way that the pagan Gentiles, the really decadent do, don't need Jesus Christ, don't need his righteousness because they have their own, don't need his death, his resurrection, his salvation. So on this side of the thought would be like Rob Ventura who proposes that these sections of Romans might lay out this way. First of all, what we saw the last couple of Sundays, how depraved humanity is today and the next couple of Sundays, the deceived moralists, and then you'll see in verse 17 that he addresses you again, and then Jews. And so the argument there would be that this may be where he picks up the specific Jews. Regardless, we can see at least two categories, depraved humanity and deluded or deceived Jews, moralists, etc., and the point that's going to be made here is it's not as different as you think it is in your head or your mind. None of these are going to heaven apart from Christ. All of these categories are types of sinners who all equally need the truth of Romans 1, 16 and 17 to be saved by faith in Christ and Romans 2, 4 at the very end to repent of their sin. But today's passage, more so than the last couple of Sundays in Romans 1, may strike home to some of us uh, in our body or to a church-going group much more. Piper just analyzing why does Paul take so long on all of these things, laying out argument after argument about sinfulness. And he proposes this. Such a long section... Why is it needed to persuade us we're sinners? Do we really doubt it? Well, yes, we do. We suppress the truth because it is so uncomfortable. We may be willing to make some general concessions that we're not perfect since nobody's perfect, but not many people are willing to admit that deep down inside they are really flawed and proud and selfish and rebellious. That's sometimes the hardest word of all to accept. And therefore, separated from God and in need of what the Bible calls salvation. Yet very few of us are willing to apply all of that to ourselves and feel yet the desperate need we have for God to do something extraordinary to save us from our corruption and our sin. The Bible is wonderfully and painfully realistic and will not let us off the hook. And Luther's argument for why so long is it's a very difficult task to speak to people particularly who don't see themselves as offensive to God in their sin apart from Christ. So in one way, we could say this is everybody's arraignment for court. This is the formal reading of the charges against you. Like them or not, agree with them or not, this is how you are being charged and tried. So would you please follow along as we read, as I read these five verses, and then let's ask God at the end of that to help us understand them. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, 
practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Father, the truth about Judgment Day and your perfect judgment of all things and all people that you reveal here in Romans 2 isn't the full picture of everything that's going to happen, but it is a powerful revelation to us of a massive, important moment in history that will determine the eternal destiny of every man. Help us now to see you rightly as judge, especially where we want to be judged. Help us see man more clearly. Help us see sin and unrighteousness more vividly the way that you do. Not just others, but our own. And help us picture Judgment Day more clearly, that it may shape the way we currently live in all the ways you mean for it when you told us this. We ask in your name and for ultimately your glory in our lives. Amen. So, as we already noted, I'm just going to, well, didn't already know, we're going to walk through this a little bit differently. I'm going to give you a point before we look at a verse, which is not the way I normally like to do it. I'd rather the verse make the point for us. I'm arguing that the verse is making these points, or the first one, that all of these verses are making this point. But putting the point up to try and be precise in what it is declaring, and then walking through a little bit of trying to understand each particular nuance of these five verses. So, big picture, main point, verses 2, 3, and 5, all talking about the coming judgment of God, is that it is coming, and that every person, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done or not done, no matter how they think they've done it, every person will ultimately be not under their own judgment and assessment, but under God's. Doesn't matter if you deny it. Doesn't matter if you don't believe it. Doesn't matter if you think you're going to find a way around it. Doesn't matter if you think, like it's a massive reality that everyone will face and no one gets around it. Hebrews 9, 27, very bluntly, everybody gets an appointment to die and after that will come judgment for everyone. No escaping death, no escaping judgment. So verse 1 says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, actually, if you want to see God's perspective on it, practice the very same things. So, last week, very briefly, we compared the situation in Romans 1 to the younger brother or the younger son in the prodigal in Luke 15. This week we can compare it to the older brother or the older son. This is the son who stayed home, who didn't disobey, who didn't take and squander his father's wealth, 
but who couldn't stand the fact that his brother, his father forgave his brother. Despicable grace. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. And I will not come to his party. That's who's in verse 1 of chapter 2. Other ways we might define this. These are people who judge themselves to be okay with God while seeing others, basically almost everybody else, as so much worse. They just do not see their own sins, at least not in an accurate light. They misjudge how deep their own sinfulness and depravity is, either denying that it exists or having excuses and justification in their mind that makes those things okay. When they look inward, they see pretty much a good person. When they look outward at others, they see pretty much bad people. Sin in themselves and sin in others look very different to them, even though they wouldn't to anyone else. Somebody warned me uh, this morning, don't use driving as an illustration, but it's such a good illustration. (laughs) Don't you think you're a better driver than almost every other person on the road? And isn't every problem everybody else's except yours? Aren't you always innocent? That's Romans 2, 1. And don't you judge other people for their driving. We all do. That's Romans 2, 1. It's, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 10, people who are measuring themselves simply by a horizontal look and by comparing themselves to others and not using accurate scales. John Stott words it this way. Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others the very faults we excuse in ourselves. This device enables us simultaneously to retain our sins and our self-respect. It's a convenient arrangement, but also both slick and sick. Now, the very same things that verse 1 at the very end refers to are perhaps the exact same sins, maybe just not manifested as egregiously, or the fact that they're equally damning things that we are doing that's offensive to God. If it's the Jews that are being addressed here, this is pointing out that they've put themselves in the seat of judges as if they haven't done these things and they're actually full of sin themselves. And James 2.10 reminds us that whoever keeps the whole law, as if any of us could even come close, but even would fall in one point, is ultimately guilty of it all. In other words, sin falls in some sense over all of us, regardless of the expression, the type, the number, etc., Fitting here is Jesus' warning then in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not or beware about having a harsh, critical, seeing yourself without sin and seeing others as very sinful, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. The measure you use, it'll be measured to you. James again, just a few verses after 2.10 in 2.13 says that judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who has shown no mercy. Though many humans feel like they have 20-20 vision, they really can't see at all.
Secondly, in verse 2, God will accurately and fairly, or we might say justly, discern each and every person's sinfulness. Now, here again could be a reference to the Jews because of their knowledge about the judgment of God that perhaps the common Gentile did not have. But he's basically giving them something that they would affirm, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, that there is uh, no exception from that, that God is going to bring that judgment and that he will ultimately judge those who are sinning apart from God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. And then he warns all of us to not pronounce judgment before the time, but because the Lord is ultimately going to bring a clarity to everything that's being judged that we humans just don't have. The next two points, verses 3 and verse 4, are two rhetorical questions that help make the point. If you want simplicity, do you suppose, do you presume? Two ways of saying, are you really thinking this way? Do you recognize the error in that? First of all, no one will escape God's judgment when it comes. And only the foolish will suppose that they'll escape judgment of their own sin. Uh, the idea of thinking will be treated differently. Um, again, this is apart from Christ. This is people who simply in their own assessment of where they are before God are weighing themselves. So Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature, nothing that God has made, no human is hidden from his sight or able even to carry out one thing hidden from his sight. God's all-knowingness makes all of us naked, exposed, unable to hide anything before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We all want to not be accountable. We all want to not have a judgment day. But that's not the reality that we're being warned of here. And we all want an escape route, an exit route, a way around it. And there is none. Either of excusing ourselves in verse 1 or escaping from it in verse 3. Verse 4, again by another question brings a really penetrating and piercing thought. It is easy right now to mistake or presume on God's tremendous kindness, forbearance, patience toward mankind and to interpret it as apathy or acceptance. You could put some other terms in there as well. So it's experiencing some common grace that all humans are given from God Every breath, every food item, every meal, every, all our family, all the blessings, all the rich and good things. Hard as life is, uh, difficult as many people's circumstances are, there is still riches of kindness being expressed by God. So this is mistakenly thinking only that God is only a God of love and forgiveness and that there is no wrath or judgment in Him. It's mistaking that the way God is now granting grace to us will be the way on judgment day when he is judging us that he will just continue to do so and wipe everything out. And I would just say here, 
to those of us who are truly recognizing the experiencing. Notice the word riches. God isn't giving his kindness, forbearance, and patience, even on sinful man, even while they're sinning offensively in front of his eyes. He's not begrudgingly giving out a little bit, stingily. This is excessive, abundance, treasures, uh, more than certainly we deserve because we deserve none of it. Quite the opposite, we've earned the opposite. And yet, as Luther says, the blindness of the wicked is that they will abuse to their own harm the very blessings God bestows on them for their good. Most people don't respond to kindness and patience the way that they should. They misconstrue it often as leniency or as permission, and they give their hearts over to do what they want because no judgment is seeming to be happening on me right now. Ecclesiastes 8 acknowledges this reality in human beings. When the sentence of an, against an evil deed is not executed speedily, we can certainly see this in our own justice system, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, to get more and more and more entrenched in wrong. Stephen Charnock says, because God is slow to anger, men are more fierce in sin and not only continue in their own re old rebellions, but heap new upon them. They invert God's order and bind themselves stronger to iniquity by that which should bind them faster to their duty before God. In Luke 16, Jesus just boiled it down to, unless you repent, you perish. God wants and requires of man repentance from sin. And he gives plenty of opportunity. He doesn't crush us with that. He doesn't do anything other than offer it through Christ, to offer to help us do it, and then to leave it on us to respond to the gospel and the news of Christ that way. Simply put, just the sin of presuming on God is worthy of eternal damnation. That is a hard concept for us to get our brains around. We're so puny, we're so self-centric, we're so judgmental of the way God is doing things. We just can't understand the evil of one sin, let alone what happens from there. Now, just briefly a word about verse four to those of you, this is applicable to all of us, so don't, excuse yourself, but to all of you young, so I'm going to say 18 and under. Give me yours for a second. I know you're normal. I, I drew you out of some dreamland. Because God is showing you incredible kindness through putting you in a home where the gospel is preached to you does not make you safe. Don't go on your parents' response to the gospel if they are believers. You will stand before God. You will give an account. All of us are called to, as chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 emphasize, believe, have faith, walk by an a unwavering faith and a complete faith in God, and then two, four, a repentance from sin. Brings us to verse 5. 
though God knows all of this, watches all of it, not going the way his heart ultimately wants it to go, he waits, and yet he warns. Verse 5, all who prove in the long run to have hard hearts toward God, and I'm defining that as those who are ultimately denying their sin or their sinfulness, their offense against God, so that rather than they confess them, they deny them or go on in them. All who prove to have hearts, God says in verse 5, will incur the wrath of God. Time in sin doesn't generally soften any of us. It hardens us. That's why the older that people get in life, the harder it is for that gospel message to sink in. The irony is, these very same people who believe, according to verse 1, that they're okay, that perhaps, if anything, their lives are earning favor with God, are actually going to discover the opposite is true. That what they've treasured up is wrath on the day of judgment. Martin Luther, the greater God's long-suffering is, the greater also will be his judgment if his goodness is bestowed in vain. He does not simply say you will receive wrath, but you treasure up large amounts of wrath. From this we learn what a hardened heart really is, namely, a heart that despises or doesn't treasure, doesn't love, doesn't appreciate, essentially ignores God's goodness, forbearance, long-suffering. It receives innumerable blessings, and yet it commits countless sins and never thinks of mending its evil ways. Somewhere, somebody said, beware the fury of a patient man. Because when that doesn't come out, doesn't come out, doesn't come out, it can often then come out in incredible violence. So also we might heed the warning, beware of a patient God who has shown such kindness for so long to those who continue in their sin. Next week, more detail on what that will look like it's not comfortable information to come and sit under, but I want to encourage you to continue to see what God is saying here. As we reflect on Romans 2, let me just urge you to consider and keep in mind the huge reality of God and his judgment. These five things we just noted today, that no one will be excused, that God will judge and perfectly discern every person, that no one will escape. That though we can presume now and misread God's kind patience, it's a fatal misjudgment. And that all hearts that prove hard toward God now will on judgment day incur his wrath. So if you've been here for a couple of Sundays or if you've looked back at Romans 1 this morning, you may not seem in your judgment to be a Romans 1 sinner. Almost all of us are going to say, oh, yeah, well, those kind of people probably shouldn't get into heaven. But if you're not a Romans 1 sinner, you're a Romans 2 sinner. So would you consider that Romans 2 might be describing you? You don't really realize how separated, how far from God you actually are. Because you've never humbled yourself to say, 
mine will never be even close to good enough. Help me, oh God, apply the precious life and death and resurrection and power and righteousness of Jesus to my life. Be merciful to me, a sinner, as we cry out in faith and in faith seek by his grace to repent. If you've never repented in faith, I want to urge you even this morning, even right where you are, to do so. And if you're unsure and you want to talk more about it, that's a conversation we'd love to have with anyone. And if you have repented, I want to urge you in light of this text to continue repenting. And we're going to walk now with the courtroom of God set before us there to the table of our Savior and fellowship with Him that will make His body and blood like Judgment Day makes his body and blood even more precious. This passage doesn't reference Christ, the cross, his body, or his blood. But it should drive those of us who know the gospel, the terminology Chris used this morning in the Sunday school, drive us to the cross, push us, cause us running to go to the cross and to Christ in light of them. We gather now at his table as comforting preparation for the day he judges. In God's courtroom, those claiming the righteousness of Christ, the body and blood of Christ, to receive what God has promised in the gospel, will receive it. I love the way it's worded later in Romans. It'll be months before we get here. So Romans 5, 9 and 10 puts it this way. Since therefore you have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Hallelujah. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Hallelujah. I love the word picture that I think is very fitting today, thinking about judgment day and our sins. That what Christ did on the cross in forgiving us our trespasses was to cancel the record of death, the record of our offenses, the record of all of our wickedness and unrighteousness that stood against us and demanded that it be judged justly. He took those for all who will believe in him, he set them aside and he nailed them. Nailed them to the cross, spiritually speaking. It's a beautiful picture. Let me ask the, those who are serving the bread and the cup to come now, if you would please, and begin to distribute them. I want to read something to you, but let me preface that to say, if you're visiting with us, and actually if you're here normally, like this table, this eating and this drinking, are for those who are relying on Christ and his righteousness by faith to make them right before God. If you're not there yet, we would love to continue to dialogue, but this is not for you. This is something for you to watch. There's nothing magical in the bread and the cup, but this time where Jesus has told us to remember him in these two ways is particularly sweet and powerful fellowship. <laughs>
So I want to take your thoughts back to Romans 2, 4 for just a minute where it talks about God's kindness, forbearance, and patience or long-suffering, another translation says. And I really appreciated Scott Hubbard and his words on this, just thinking about Christ's death and Christ's patience. In Jesus the God-man, the song of God's slowness to anger and his article built a whole long thing about the Old Testament and God's slowness to anger, swells to its crescendo. Jesus' ministry was one of patience, for to be with us was to bear with us as the unrivaled prince of patience. We occasionally see the pain of his patience, but mostly he kept that cost hidden, pouring out his soul to his Father and receiving from his Father the patience needed as his enemies slandered him His neighbors rejected him. His disciples misunderstood him. And the crowds tried to use him. And thus, he also died. Though 12 legions of angels stood ready for his summons, he never called. Instead, patience incarnate took the lashes, the thorns, the nails, allowing his creatures to mock him with a breath he gave them. All the while, pleading for their forgiveness. In the cross of Jesus, we said not only that God is patient, but how God can be so patient. How could he in his divine forbearance pass over former sins? And how can he in his divine forbearance continue to show us mercy? Because the patience of God in the person of Christ purchased our forgiveness. God's patience rests on the passion of his son. And therefore his patience will last as long as our resurrected Christ pleads the merits of his blood. Which is to say, forever, forever, forever. Whoever and wherever we are, God's patience invites our repentance.